0: Welcome to the State of Them Art Podcast, a space where we drive conversations around what it means to be woman creatively and artistically in today's industry. A place where women from various walks of life share their experiences, triumphs, and obstacles as they navigate the state of the world and their creativity. This is a safe space, one where women are celebrated for being fearlessly and unapologetically them. It is a space of belonging for those who feel their artistic and creative endeavors have gone unseen, unheard, or unsupported. But here you will also get resources and tools to help you reach your next level. We'll laugh together, cry together, but more importantly, we'll grow together. I am Tamia Faulkner and this is The State of Femme Art. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the State of Film Art Podcast. I am your host, Tamiya Faulkner, and I am excited about today's guest. Today, I will be speaking with Georgia Stitt. She is a composer, lyricist, music director, pianist, and music producer who has composed both theatrical and non-theatrical works. Georgia received her MFA in musical theater writing from NYU and her bachelor's in music and music theory and composition from Vanderbilt University. Uh, She's also the founder of Maestra Music, which has a purpose of making sure that they provide support, visibility, and community to women and non-binary people who make the music in musical theater industry. How are you, Georgia?
1: Oh, I'm so well, Tamia. Thank you so much. It's always such a thrill to have someone read your bio to you. I hope everyone gets to feel what that feels like.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think it's so important for for people to know a bit about your background before we dive into our conversation. Uh, One of the things that I'm most excited to talk about is how Maestro Music (laughs) came about. Um, I'm so passionate about making sure that there is gender parity and equity within the arts in general. And so I believe, I want to say Maestro Music started in about maybe 2019 before the pandemic.
1: Even longer ago than that, it started in 2017 um, as sort of a a club even, like a gathering of like-minded people, but we officially incorporated as a not-for-profit in 2019. You're right about that. Wow. So what
0: was the process like for that? Were you uh, working as a composer within the industry and just fed up with some of the things that you may have (laughs) experienced? I know for me, that's a part of the reason I started this podcast. So I can only imagine...
1: (laughs) How could you possibly know that I was fed up? <laughs> we were all fed up. Um, it, it. I mean, yes, there was some of that. There was... I mean, the the origin story, as I like to tell it, is that I was music directing an off-Broadway show. The show is called Sweet Charity. Musical theater fans know it. And um, it starred uh, a Broadway star named Sutton Foster. Uh, we had a female director, Lee Silverman, and she was really making a case that Sweet Charity behaved differently when she was in the company of women than she was when she was out in the world and she had to interact with men because even uh, in the case of this this character, she was trying to find a husband, you know, so that she was always on when she was out with the world, but she felt safe with her women. And so because the band was going to be visible on stage, and we were sort of in the dressing room with the character of Charity, she said, I think the band should be women so that it's part of this safe space that we can create for her. Um, And so the music department was charged with hiring an all female band, and we're like, great, no problem, except it turned out to be a really, really difficult thing to do. This was in 2016, um, and uh, it, I like to say it was before the election. And um, and when we were actually there, we say on the day that Hillary Clinton was not elected, <laughs> and we were in rehearsal in that space talking about the plight of trying to be a woman um, breaking a glass ceiling at that time. But anyway, it proved to be really hard for us to find this all-female band. And it forced us to uh, reckon with even our own biases, of how often we were like, oh, let me just call my boys. Let me just hire you know, my favorite bass player and my favorite drummer and my favorite guitarist. And they were all men. Um, and so when we started looking for who these women really were, we had to butt up against the idea that The other music directors didn't know who they were. The music contractors didn't know who they were. The producers didn't know who they were. And everybody's, like the top 10 names on everybody's list were men. And once I started digging for the women who actually had the skills and the expertise and could do this job, I had a pretty extensive spreadsheet of names that had come my way. And in one case in particular, the woman that we finally hired said, I've been trying to break into this business for a long time and I couldn't figure out how to get hired. Um, So that was the beginning of it. And then, you know, it turned into these women should know each other and I don't want to be the keeper of all this data. What if I build a database and put it on the Web so that other people can see it and these women can get hired and that was the beginning of what became the Maestra Directory, which is at the center of our website, which is org. is this directory that now has over 1,700 women and non-binary people who are professional musicians who work in the theater in some capacity and are ready to be hired. So that is game-changing, I think.
0: The origin story is phenomenal in and of itself. And I think It even speaks to this whole good for a girl narrative. When I heard you say everyone in the room was just like, hey, let me call my boys or my guys who I I may usually call in these circumstances. Why do you feel oftentimes uh, people within the industry, particularly music industry, especially I've noticed when it comes to um, composers, musicians, um, music producers, A lot of times those who are getting the calls are predominantly um, men. And why was there, especially at that time, it's getting progressively better. Of course, there's still some work to do, but, you know, it's it's automatic for men to get the call. But most of the time, as you mentioned, with, you know, women and and non-binary people, it may be a bit more difficult to break into the industry.
1: I think, um, you know, I've, I've started to be really intentional about identifying, I call it when, it when it's a high stakes gig or when it's a low stakes gig. And certainly if it's a high stakes gig, like a recording session or like a televised event or something where, you know, like you can't make a mistake, um, which even that is like, what is that perfectionist mentality? But, you know, the idea that everyone has to be at the top of their game. Um, you tend to want to hire people that you've worked with before. You want to be like, okay, I, everything about this situation is heightened and scary and the stakes are high. And so I just want to be surrounded by people that I know are going to show up and be great and I don't have to worry about them. And so in those cases, we hire the people that we've worked with before. And if we've always worked with men before, then that, you know, like generates like. Um, but I've started to really, like I said, be intentional about identifying when a gig is not a high stakes gig, when it's a lower stakes gig, then you can bring someone in and say, not that we assume that someone's going to make a mistake, but that there's a little bit more safety for them to learn the ropes or or be scared or to try something new or be a little out of their comfort zone. And when I can identify that it's that sort of situation, I'm like, all right, let me try this person who has been recommended to me, but I don't know so that when the next time rolls around and it's a high-stakes gig, I can hire the person who has already been proven to me on the lower-stakes gig. But I guess that's a long-winded answer of saying um, we tend to hire the people that we've worked with before, and if we've always worked with men before, then that is is sort of a self-generating idea. So would you also then
0: say when it comes to centering more women within the industry and non-binary people within the industry that, you know, education also is at the basis of that um, to make sure that those People are equipped that more women, more non binary people are being equipped um, to fulfill even some of the high stake roles when they do um, come their way or when they do receive those opportunities.
1: Absolutely, yes. And I think I've seen personally instances where you want somebody to be ready and you recommend, I'll say her in this case, but it could be anyone, you know, for a job and then realize that. They're they're not set up for success. They you know they don't actually have the skills that you needed. You were just hoping that they did, and that can be dangerous and and can have ill effects both to the person you recommended and to the industry as a whole. Um, at Maestro, we have uh, you know we keep talking about the pipeline, which of course is the buzzword around all of this work. But we talk about the pipeline. We have. A mentorship program. Right now, we have this year we have sixty five pairings of uh, mentees with mentors who are working in the professional space. Uh, like my mentor, my so my mentee right now is a woman who is has been working as a music director for a long time. She's been out on the road, but she's also a composer, and she's trying to make the shift from. You know, She knows she can get work as a music director. She's not sure she knows how to get work as a composer. And she's trying to cross that bridge. And that's something that I have done in the past. And so I'm showing her what I know and introducing her to people and opportunities to help set her up for success as she moves into a new professional space. Um, but we have 65 teams of people that are doing that. And then we also offer virtual technical workshops online. Which are um, hour-long classes where our members, who are experts at something, teach a Zoom class. You know about anything from like writing vocal arrangements to this is how a harp works. This is how an accordion works. These are a whole bunch of different mutes that you might want to consider using when you write for the trombone. Um, this is how you conduct from the piano. I mean, all just all sorts of technical skills that people might be able to pick up in an hour um, that we. We, we developed this program during the pandemic when nobody could do anything in person. And we were like, all right, we have to keep connecting our members to each other and we have to keep providing um, opportunities for them to learn or especially musicians start to feel like, I'm not able to make music. I no longer know who I am. <laughs> what is my identity? What is my life? Um, and, and I think in many ways, those workshops helped keep our community grounded and connected to each other. But also a lot of people have said, I learned a lot of skills, like I'm a better writer now or a better conductor or a better pianist or whatever it is um, as a result of um, having that time with those workshops. So yes, again, that's another long-winded answer to say it is definitely about education because we have to set people up for success so that they can step forward into the next level of what they're supposed to be doing.
0: But it's also so crucial because like you mentioned, if you are going into these rooms for the first time and getting an opportunity, I'm sure first, you don't want to screw up (laughs) Um, because this is, you know, your big moment kind of to prove yourself. And also, on the other side of that, you want to make sure that you're well equipped for any opportunity that comes your way. So, I think it's great that you all have the mentorship side of things, but also the education where you know, people are able to become better um, in the things that they aspire to do within music.
1: And in addition to that, in those rooms that I think, especially with women and non-binary people, you're you're bringing. You're bringing with you. Uh, you have to face the bias that other people bring into the room. I mean, I personally have the have had the experience where I'm the music director of a project, and I'm standing behind the piano, and somebody comes up and says, "Is your boss nearby?" And I'm like, "I am the boss. This, I, I am the boss." Like the assumption, wow. you know, the assumption. Yeah. And and I have another music director who said to me, she she walked out to conduct the show, and somebody was like, "Oh, are you are you filling in today?" And she's like, "No, it's, this is my job." <laughs> And so just the, you know, all that you have to do to be set up for success, but also to have the armor to, to not let those things, you know, uh, eat away at your confidence and your, your knowledge that you are actually capable of doing this job.
0: What are some of the things you wish you knew before entering into the industry and, how did you prepare yourself for navigating some of those biases that exist
1: within the rooms you enter? Okay, I'm gonna, those are two to me, those are two different questions. So let me see. The um the first one is uh what do I wish I had known? Um I I spend a lot of time wishing that I had known when I was very young at the beginning of my career, that a lot of the work that comes your way will be because you make it happen. I, I remember like in my twenties thinking, if I can just get an agent, then the agent will send me work and then I'll work (laughs) and, um, and not really understanding that so much of so many opportunities are about the the people that you meet and, and the, the networking and the relationships you build and the follow-up emails and the inviting people to see things and the, you know, all, all of the, not just, you know, networking can be gross, but I think the, uh. The actual being interested in human beings and building relationships and taking care of those relationships um, can lead to work and also can lead to relationships, which are satisfying on their own, but can lead to work and to opportunities. Because so much, I think, in the music business and the theatrical music business are about there's a moment where somebody is in a position to hire and, and they're thinking in their brain, like, who should I hire for this job? And, and you want to be... In their head, in that moment, or in the directory that they're using to look for people. You know, you want you want to be someone that comes up, and they're like, "Oh, I like her. I'd like to work with her. She would be good for this." And so much of that is just about being present. And then, and then, I don't remember exactly what the second part of the question was, except that I, um, I remember saying that I wanted to tell you there's another woman in the business. In, in my line of work, her name is Mary Mitchell Campbell, and she's a music supervisor. She um, um, She's currently the music supervisor of Some Like It Hot on Broadway, but she did Mean Girls, and she's Kristen Chenoweth's music director, and she's out on the road a lot. She and I are relatively the same age, and we came up the business at the same time, came up through the business at the same time. And I I talk a lot about how important it was for me to have Uh, a girlfriend, like just someone in the business that was, you know, climbing the ranks along with me that I could call and say, Hey, I just got offered this job. I don't, is this money, right? Is this, should I have a lawyer look over this contract or um, do we like this conductor or, you know, I can't do this job. Can you do it? Cause I don't want to just say no. I'd like to give them an alternative. You know, that kind of person, um, and and she did the same for me. And and now we're we're both several decades into this industry, and and both uh, at much further along in our work. And still, I, I say she's the person that has my back, and I'm the person that has her back. And um, and I think in many cases, we neither of us would have landed where we are if we hadn't had that springboard of a person to talk to. In fact, she was. Uh, she was one of my collaborators on the Sweet Charity Project at the beginning of the Maestra, you know, the founding of Maestra. She was on that project as well. And she was one of the people that I was like, all right, who are the female musicians you know? Um, and, and I think how hard it must be to go through this business totally alone. And so many music departments don't have any women in them or only have one woman or non-binary person in them. And, um, and, and just how crucial it is to have somebody like that and that's the you know you read off our mission statement at the beginning of this interview and you said the maestro provides support visibility and community but i think that's where the community comes from is this idea that we need we need those people around us that um, can help answer our questions and and show us roads to uh, to paths that we might not be able to see ourselves
0: you definitely need your people that's for sure and it's always amazing to have someone, like you said, within the industry that you can lean on. The second part of that um, question of the two-part question was, how do you prepare yourself or how have you prepared yourself to um, navigate through the industry, knowing that in some of the rooms you enter, there will be bias?
1: Um, How do you prepare yourself? I mean, the tough reality is that you just acknowledge that it's there and, um, and you have the, the fortitude to take it head on when it comes. But also I would say my older answer to this question now would be also to ignore it in the, me- in the moments when it's not worth the fight. You know, I was at an event this week. There were two, two other musicians with me, um, two men and me and we were all dressed up in like very fancy clothes. And someone came up and asked the two men musical questions and then said to me, your dress looks nice. <laughs> and I I think he thought I was like the girlfriend of somebody or the wife of somebody. There was just no no sense that I might also be a musician too. And inside, I just felt my blood start to boil up. And then in my brain, I was like, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Like in this case, I smiled and nodded and was like, okay. And then I got to leave. I didn't have to talk to that person anymore. But sometimes it does matter. Like sometimes that person who's making that assumption is actually someone that you need to know, or someone who could potentially hire you, or someone who you know. And in that case, I think it just takes a a supreme inner strength that we don't always have. But this inner strength to say, "Hi, I'm also a musician," in a way that um, makes the person say, "Oh gosh, I'm sorry. I, I you know I didn't realize," and call out their own bias, their own error of ways. But, you know, it's a tough question, the one you just asked. I'm not sure I have the answer to it beyond that. But
0: that that is good because sometimes it's not always worth the fight. I remember someone telling me throughout my career, the person who has the power is the person that's not afraid to walk away. And sometimes you do need to determine whether or not it's worth it. Um, the the fight or if it's something that just isn't worth it and so i i think that's a great answer that you gave i'm always interested to find out what or when was the moment that um you people knew you know in this case you that you knew that music was the path that you would choose for your life. Was it something uh, where you had a family who was musically inclined? Did you just happen to fall in love with music one day by admiring a particular composer or musician? What was
1: it for you? What a great question. Um, Well, my, like how I found piano story is when I was seven, um, my mom says that I had a babysitter and she would drop me off at the babysitter's house instead of the babysitter coming to my house. And the babysitter had a piano and my mother would pick me up at the end of the time. And the babysitter would say, she's just been picking things out at the piano the whole time. She'd be like trying to figure out songs and trying to figure out how to make this thing play. And she's actually making music. Uh, and my mom was like, oh, that's interesting. And the babysitter said, she, you should probably put her in piano lessons. Um And she did, and that was the beginning of my relationship to being, a, I guess, a trained musician. You know, I'm sure as a little girl, I sang songs and all that, but really beginning to learn how to read music and how to be a a pianist. And then um, I just, you know, I lived in a small town in Tennessee, and my parents kept saying, you're a big fish in a small town. Like, uh, I guess it was a big fish in a small pond. (laughs) That's the phrase. Uh, And, and... My mom kept saying, "We want. I want to put you in a bigger pond. Like I want to, you know, in my little town, I was the only. I was the only kid in high school who did what I did, and so it was very. Um, it. It. I got a lot of positive feedback for being such a great pianist, and I was in the marching band, and I played in my church choir for my church choir, and the high school went to Allstate, and all those sort of musical accolades that a teenager does. Um, but then. I went to college and majored in music and continued to have success. And my mom was like, we have to get you in a bigger pond. And eventually I wound up in New York City and we were all like, okay, now the pond is very big. <laughs> now you're in the biggest pond that you can swim in. Um, so I think in, in terms of like when I knew, I think by the time I was 13 or 14, I knew this is the thing I love the most. I used to come home from school and throw down my backpack and go to the piano and start practicing. No one had to ask me to practice. I just wanted to play. Um, And then there was a summer camp that I went to where I was introduced to the idea of music composition. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that people could write music. And then I came home and asked for composition lessons and um, continued to do that and just continued to look for, educational, offer, like, can I major in this in college? Can I go to grad school? Can I, you know, um, in what ways can I keep doing this? Um, I will say the, a funny little footnote to that story is that when I was a senior in high school, you know, when they go around and they do the yearbook interviews and they ask you um, what, you know, like your quote is and what, you're, what you want in the yearbook, mine says that um, I'm going to go to Northwestern University and major in economics and I did neither of those things. <laughs> but at the time, I think I was really frustrated that people thought, oh, well, obviously she's going to be a musician. And I, in my brain, I was like, I want people to think that I am capable of other things. And like, if I wanted to, I could major in economics or something. And that must have been the day that they came around with the interview. And I was like, I'm going to major in economics. And a week later, I was like, no, I'm going to major in music. <laughs>
0: That's hilarious. It's like, it's almost like the rebel in the creative
1: or, or the <laughs> artist to say, no, don't put me in a box. That's exactly what it was. I'm capable of more, but it turns out you're right. I do want to do this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I mean, wow, since seven, like just playing around and, and picking around at the the piano and for your babysitter to notice and, and to mention something. And then um, your parents to continue to cultivate that skill is always uh, such a great, such a great
1: thing. So. Oh wait, before you move on, before you move on, I have one more thought about that the way you just summarized that I thought of a story that when I was, I don't know, maybe 14 or 15 years old, I did have a falling out with a piano and I started to hate it. And um, I remember asking my I guess, again, my mother, if I could quit um, and really like on a regular basis, I hate this, can I quit? And she said, you know, the way my, the way my lessons were set up, they were on kind of a year long schedule. You'd start new pieces in the fall and you'd work on them all year. And then you'd do a big recital in the spring. And there were some piano competitions that I'd do in the spring. So this must've been around mid-year that I was saying I wanted to quit. And my mom said, you've made a commitment to your teacher you would be in the recital and so i want you to get all the way through the recital learn these pieces master these pieces get to the recital and if after the recital you still want to quit i'll let you quit and then you don't have to continue but you can't quit mid-cycle because you've made a commitment and of course by the time i got to the recital i loved it again it was i wanted to quit because it was hard i'm sure um and I think about that all the time, what good parenting that was and what a good life lesson that was that you're not allowed to quit because it's hard. You can quit because you hate it, but I'm not sure you can even see whether or not you hate it right now because you're so caught up in how hard it is. And I tr- try to hang on to that. And I've certainly tried to, I, I'm a parent now and I try to pass that along to my kids as well.
0: Wow. So in in speaking about even how difficult, right, us. Going through the the journey and the path of our dreams, and you know sometimes it's it's not easy sometimes it does get difficult when you were making the transition from college into going into your actual professional career. what were some of um the hurdles or what were some of the hard moments where you realized, okay, like this is a leap that I'm I'm taking for real to make this into a career rather than something I'm just I'm passionate about or just studied in school. But this is going
1: to be my life's work. Yeah, um, I think I think my first thought in answer to answer that is that the hardest part about being a young musician is um, is the instability of income or guarantee of work, you know, that you're hustling so much. Uh, You know, you sign, in my case, I sign a a lease on an apartment. I'm going to pay this much rent every month. And then you don't know whether, it's not like you you sign a job, a contract that has a salary or, you know, a regular weekly paycheck. It's um, in theater, you work, until the show closes, or you get hired to, you know, do a one night only gig or a one week only gig or something. And, and there were many months where it was all great, there was enough money coming in, and I felt fine and safe. And then there would be months where it was not great or not safe. And, um, and the panic of like, do I, do I quit this and do something else that has more stability? Do I get like a I worked at Barnes and Noble for a very short amount of time to just like make sure (laughs) that I had regular income. But then, um, then my hours at Barnes and Noble got in the way of my ability to make music. And I was like, you're either doing this or you're not doing this. Um, And so that leap of faith and being able to um, live in very inexpensive circumstances at the beginning, I think is, is, it's exactly what you're talking about. But you've, you know, you feel safe in school and it's all sort of academic and you're doing very well until there's a moment where you're like, I might not be able to afford my apartment this month unless I figure this out. That to me was the, the biggest leap. Yeah.
0: What are some of the moments you're most proud of?
1: Uh, I would say I've, I have anytime I can take a, a a project, a that I dreamed up and get it to the finish line. I'm super proud of that. One of my biggest, most proud accomplishments is uh, the very first album that I recorded in 2007. I made an album called This Ordinary Thursday. And as a as a young person, I was writing theater songs, and uh, and I like to say that when you write the song, it's sort of like you've created a blueprint for a piece of art, but you haven't actually made the art. You haven't actually realized it. You've got the sheet music for the song that you created, but until you make the music, um, it's not exactly a song yet. And so I had written and sort of scrolled away on my hard drive all of these songs and um, And I decided to spend the money to make an album to actually record them, to hire musicians and hire singers and hire producer and graphic designer and all the team of people that you have to create to, you have to hire to get an album to the finish line. And I self-produced my first album because I thought, how are people going to know that I'm a writer unless they can hear what I do? Um, And so getting that project to the finish line and releasing it and um, and being able to have it out in the world and get feedback from that. It, in some ways, it was like a very, very expensive business card or calling card that I, I made this thing that then announced to the world, this is me. You think I'm a pianist. You think I'm a music director, but actually what I am is a songwriter. And it put me in a different category. The world started to respond to me differently. And I started to get calls for things as a writer um, because I had created legitimacy, I think, for the work that I was trying to do. And I, you know, that sort of harkens back to what I was saying before about uh, how you have to make your own opportunities so often. If I was waiting for somebody to come along and say, can we produce an album for you? That would never ever have happened. But, um, but, it, but because I was able to do that, it, it, it changed the shape of my career. And, um, and still that album is something tangible, you know, so much of music isn't tangible, but that, that thing I can, I mean, because it was old enough to be a printed CD, I can actually hold it in my hands. It's an actual thing that I made. Um, so I'm very proud of that. And then there've been other albums since then, but none of them were quite as hard as the first one. Um, because so much of when you're doing something the first time is you're learning how to do it and who you need to ask for help and, um, and how this works you know, so I would say that is something I'm very proud of. And then I think the, you know, where we started the launch of Maestra and what it has turned into is something else that I'm super proud of, that it began out of the need of building this community and and wanting to share these resources with my peers, and has now grown into a pretty major not-for-profit organization that has a lot of industry impact and Several full time staff members and is much bigger than me or um, and my initial ideas. You know, a lot of times I sit in Meister meetings and just respond to the ideas other people are putting forth. And I think, I just I cannot believe that we are here already that has grown this much and is having this much, um, this many people are committed to it. That is thrilling for
0: me. Well, it sounds like you took a gamble on yourself and won. <laughs> and, you know, people are are continuing to be impacted by that work, not just on the advocacy side through Maestro Music and and making impact within the industry, but also you creating that first, you know, album as an expensive calling card to say, hey, here's what I can do. And, you know, it being the starting continuation of you continuing to put Works out there. So, how can our listeners find out more about Maestro Music, um, you and and what you have coming up?
1: Sure. Well, um, let's see. Maestro Music has a website. It's MaestroMusic.org, and we're on um, social media: Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. You know, there are places you can look. the um, The website has. Um, if you go to the education page and look at the classes, there that's how you get to viewing the classes that we've done in the past. I think social media is really the, um, the, the clearest way for seeing what we have coming up. But there is a weekly newsletter that you can sign up for, and um, that's chock full of um, things Maestro is doing, but also aggregated information that we've collected from out in the world women and non-binary people making music in the theater industry and in the classical industry and in the jazz industry and in film industry, um, you know, stories that highlight women conductors or women winning awards or, um, opportunities that you can apply for awards that you can apply for. So that is a great resource for Maestra. And then for me, uh, boy, it's sometimes when you get asked this question, I'm like, I really need to update my website, (laughs) my own personal website. But I, I am very active on social media as well. It's just my name, Georgia Stitt. And, um, and, and I, and I do also have a newsletter that is, uh, It's so funny to say these back to back because I put so much more energy into Maestra's uh, outreach than to my own. But all right, all right, all right. You're you're making me feel bad.
0: (laughs) Don't feel bad at all. Everyone, make sure that you follow Maestra Music as well as Georgia Stitt. Georgia, thank you so much for your time and for being a guest on the State of Femme Art podcast. I know you're going to continue to do great things through your organization and also continue to really inspire other women and and non-binary people who are trying to break into the industry by just simply hearing your story and the things that you've done to push the needle forward in the industry. So thank you for all of the amazing and incredible work you're doing.
1: Wow, thank you so much. And thank you for giving me this platform in the space that you've built um, to showcase the amazing work that women artists are doing on so many different platforms. I'm honored to be part of it. Thank you for
0: tuning in to this episode of the State of Film Art podcast. You can catch new episodes bi-weekly on Thursdays. And make sure that you connect with us by following us on Instagram at SoFimArt. And you can also visit our website and listen to past episodes at SoFilmArt.com.